Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. The head of the World Bank is warning that climate change will lead to violent conflict over shortages of food and water. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel said Monday that rising sea levels and other effects of climate change... Everyone, welcome back to America Adapts, the climate change podcast. I'm your host, Doug Parsons. On this week's episode, we have Davia Palmieri, the climate change coordinator with the Association for Fish and Wildlife Agencies. We also have Tim Watkins for the Adaptation and Wine Power Hour. Don't forget to visit the website at americadapts.org. Think about subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and if you want to send me an email, I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Stick around and thanks for joining in. The world is looking to the United States, to us, to lead. This is the only planet we've got. All right, welcome back, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. I'm Doug Parsons, your host. On today's episode, I have Davia Palmieri from the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. Hi, Davia. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me on. I know, Davia. It's a pleasure. So let's just jump right into this. I want people to, to kind of figure out what the state wildlife agencies are, and AFWA is at the thick of that. So what is a state wildlife agency? So state fish and wildlife agencies are uh, in typically quite old organizations. For example, we just had our annual meeting hosted by the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission and the Pennsylvania Game Commission. And that Fish and Boat Commission is celebrating their 150th anniversary wow. as an agency. These state agencies, uh, in most cases, were stood up around the turn of the century, and most of that was related to managing populations of uh, ungulates and birds that we hunt. And so they're focused on the original conservation movement where um, huge numbers of animals are being taken for consumptive uses. And there was a recognition for the first time that if we don't do this sustainably, uh, we will lose these species that are so valuable to our country. So uh, the state agencies were created around that time and the to manage those populations. And uh, they gave permits for hunting and fishing. And uh, the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies came into existence in 1902 to uh, help those states work across state lines and sort of present a unified vision from the state agencies. What's an ungulate? Just so our listeners know what that is. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, Doug. The ungulate species are those with hooves. So when we're thinking about state fish and wildlife agencies, we're talking about deer, elk, moose, um, those those big game species. Well, I've always found a useful term is the, the hook and bullet agency. You either shoot something or you fish for something. <laughs> and it's come a long way from that, right? Absolutely. So those were the origins of the fish and wildlife agencies. And now a fish and wildlife agency is more defined by um, the idea of the, the trust species. So the state agencies have the responsibility to manage all of the wildlife in the states. Um, the only wildlife that is, in theory, managed by the Federal Fish and Wildlife Service are those that are protected by the Endangered Species Act or the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So the state agencies have responsibility to manage that full suite from your hook and bullet related species down to your monarch butterfly and freshwater mussel species and 
reptiles and amphibians. Now, in Florida, where I worked, it was my understanding that pretty much every bit of wildlife was owned by the state, unless it was in that federal exception. Is that true for most states? Like, they don't own the land. Like, there could be a deer on X plot of land. They don't actually own the land, but the wildlife is under, I don't know if ownership is the right word, but is that pretty similar across most of the states? Yes, I'd say ownership maybe isn't the best word, but the, the jurisdiction to manage those animals uh, rest with the state. There's a lot of diversity between states related to management of invertebrate species, which are those things like mussels and insects. Some states manage insects through the Department of Agriculture, sort of relating them to pests for agriculture. And some states have the responsibility to manage those insects as wildlife. So there's diversity there, but mainly across uh, states, it applies to all wildlife. Now, can anyone be a member of AFWA? Uh, we do have in our bylaws some, some stricter membership rules, but we have right now as members, we have 56 states and territories of the United States. So that's including um, Puerto Rico and Guam and some of the other territories. We have Canadian provinces as members, and then we also have the federal agencies as members. So the Federal Fish and Wildlife Service and uh, the U.S. Geological Survey, the U.S. Forest Service, and those agencies related to natural resource management at the federal level. And so these are all of our members, and our goal is to help facilitate partnerships between all of these diverse members at the state and federal level. Okay, so that was my next question. What, I mean, you talked a little bit of the history of AFLA, but what do you guys really do? In terms of what our mission is, I'll just tell you that uh, more broadly, our mission is related to supporting and advocating for state, provincial, and territorial authority in relationship with the federal agencies, but then also focusing on finding ways to allow those agencies to use science-based management in their work and form partnerships across uh, all sectors, including the, the non-governmental. You, I guess what I'm trying to kind of dig into, too, is like I part of the sort of bread and butter of the things that you do, you have these committees or you might have positions within AFWA that work on particular, I mean, there's bird issues. I mean, so maybe is there any sort of prominent ones you want to mention? Sure. Well, so I'd say that there's sort of, in my thinking, there's two sides of what AFWA does. One of those sides is related more to um, relating between governments. Uh, we have people on staff that work with Congress a lot on rules and regulations related to managing fish and wildlife. And then we have the other side that's very focused on providing services to support science-based management. I'm on that team, and I provide resources and synthesis of information that's out there on climate adaptation and helping state agencies and their staff find ways to incorporate that into what they do. And my work is supported by the Climate Change Committee at AFWA that's made up of all sorts of AFWA members who are interested in this topic. Other folks on my team are working on bird conservation, so they are helping promote a national conversation on bird conservation and pushing on various priorities related to that. Uh, we have a reptile and amphibian coordinator who's doing uh, similar work. You know, one of her big initiatives right now is related to fungus called bee sow that is not yet in the United States, but it's having a huge impact on reptile and amphibian populations in Europe. She's working to mobilize the reptile and amphibian conservation community nationally to prepare for if it arrives here and have a plan in place. So that's the kind of work that we do on the science team at AFWA. 
That is truly one of the great job titles, the reptile, reptile and amphibian <laughs> coordinator. My children would just think that's the coolest thing in the world if their dad was the reptile coordinator. So. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty jealous. <laughs> <laughs> when she introduces herself places, that's uh, standing room only. Well, okay, here's a bit of a pivot for you, Davia. This podcast is all about climate change adaptation, and so you just mentioned that you do adaptation. You are the climate change coordinator, and so what – I wanted to talk a little bit about, and some of those other things that you also mentioned, I want to dig into a little bit deeper later on the podcast, but AFWA, state wildlife agencies, I want to talk about the history of adaptation and maybe give a little bit more background. I have some questions later about the committee and some of the things that the committee's doing. You don't necessarily have to go into that, but I'm just, the more of when climate change really became an issue for AFWA and the states, what sort of things were happening nationally, and I guess what I'm getting at is maybe like the cap and trade, but is there sort of a short history of adaptation at AFWA in the States that you could give? <laughs> sure. So uh, I'd say I can give you the history that I know. There's probably a lot more out there that uh, I, I'm not aware of. But our government affairs director actually in around 2007 started to think about climate adaptation as a big issue for states and mostly through the lens of this is a big new threat to our fish and wildlife and our you know, heritage related to that. And we don't have any funding to change what we do or to figure this issue out. So that was really the approach that AFWA started with is how do we fund the ability to think about climate change and incorporate climate adaptation into our work. And like you said, the cap and trade bill was sort of that first opportunity. So at the very beginning of the Obama administration, there was a, a cap and trade bill that had a lot of support and a lot of interest. And one of the provisions of that was that some of that funding would go into wildlife conservation. So the AFWA Climate Change Committee was created around that time to start advocating for that funding and figuring out ways that we would use it. So uh, my understanding is that when the Climate Change Committee came into existence, it was a standing room only situation <laughs> with hundreds of people at our annual meeting oh, yeah. um, trying to attend this and trying to sort of wrap their heads around it and find out how they can get that funding to do their work. Yeah, and I used to attend on behalf of Florida to some of those meetings, and they truly were standing room only. And to give people a sense of how excited everyone was about that cap and trade is that a lot of the states have these non-game programs, and we don't need to go into that, but like in Florida, the non-game program, I think, got like a million and a half a year. And the way that one of the cap and trade bills was designed is the funding through adaptation could have upped that number to like $150 million a year just for Florida working on adaptation. And so – at the time, all the states were in a t it was a it was creating a revolution and like people getting excited about this. Lots of great things were happening. But then what happened? Uh, well, so that bill did not pass. <laughs> and stopped. And, uh, right. And so the, uh, the there was no more thought of, of a financial support for doing climate adaptation work. That interest really uh, started to decline. And uh, we've ended up with the folks that I call the diehards who are people who recognize that we need to do this work with existing funding at this point, and we're not going to give up on the idea of, of new ways to, to fund it. But there's a lot of people who are just working on figuring out how they can incorporate climate adaptation into conservation and keep on with their work as currently funded. One of the things that did come out of the, the cap-and-trade excitement was a request from Congress for a um, comprehensive climate adaptation strategy for natural resources. And 
in this case, we're, we're defining that as sort of the living natural resources, which are fish, wildlife, and plants. And so the uh, Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies was asked by the Fish and Wildlife Service and uh, NOAA National Marine Fisheries Service to work together to build this climate adaptation strategy. So that was um, a huge effort with hundreds of people from our community working together and making a, almost like a list of if there's everything we could do to try and prepare fish, wildlife, and plants for climate change, this is what we would do. And that originally was born from this idea of if we are going to get uh, money on the order of $150 million per state, we really should start having a plan for, for that money uh, rather than have it arrive and then figure out what to do. Uh, so that strategy was released in, in 2013 and is out there, and that's a, a big foundation of my work. Right. I'll have a few more questions on the strategy later on. But to AFWA's credit, I mean, I remember the excitement coming out of the cap and trade. And when it died, it was a huge disappointment. But like you said, the feds were still trying to go ahead with the strategy. And AFWA created your position. And I know it's evolved a little bit over the years. But to you know, they, AFWA could have walked away from the issue of climate change, especially in the sense of staffing it or part-time staffing it. And so they, they stuck with it. And just I, I don't want to get into the politics of it all. But, you know, all 50 states have different approaches to climate change, and it can be a somewhat of a touchy issue for AFWA. And to their credit, they stuck with having a, a climate change committee and climate change person on. So, yeah, I, I think that's to be applauded. Yeah, thanks, Doug. And I absolutely appreciate it in that it's my job, and <laughs> I'm really passionate about this issue. But I also think the idea of every state being in a different place on climate change in some ways is an asset in that the committee can use that to help states learn from each other. And so, you know, the state of California does have funding coming in through cap and trade legislation. And so they have all these examples of what they've been able to do and achieve that we can then share with other states that don't have the same funding stream, but can try and replicate some of that. There goes California again, <laughs> leading the country. Darn them. I knew you wanted to talk about California instead of Florida. <laughs> no, no, I all I keep bringing up Florida on this podcast. So, well, I want to step back a little bit because you, Davia Palmieri, you are the climate change coordinator at AFWA, and I want to get a little bit more background on you. I think people want to get a sense of like how do people get into these positions? A climate change coordinator, you're seeing more and more of these kind of positions pop up, but they're still relatively new. So, what is your background? You've been only doing the job how long? Three, four years? About three years. So, what did you do before that? So right before AFWA, I was finishing up my master's degree. Uh, so I have a, a master's in conservation biology from Columbia University in New York. And my research there was not uh, explicitly about climate change. I was actually studying how land use patterns uh, and how those are changing is affecting a small community of forest birds uh, and an island in Micronesia. <laughs> so wow. my work was very focused on um, this particular island in the high elevation cloud forest, but I was living out there and doing my research, and the number one issue on people's minds there was way more related to sea level rise than anything that was going on at the high elevations. So that was sort of my first motivation that this is something that's important. Um, but also as a graduate student, I worked for the American Bird Conservancy as an intern, and I was their climate change intern. So uh, that's an organization that's really focused on protecting the rarest, and they're working on bird species that have, you know, fewer than 100 individuals left. So they're sort of always thinking in crisis mode. 
So I had the opportunity to come in and look at some of the, the areas in South America that they've been purchasing for these sort of crisis situations, protect every individual and saying, well, is this land actually going to be valuable for this conservation goal based on climate change? So that was my first real immersion in the climate change issue. So are you a native New Yorker? I am. I grew up on Long Island, right outside New York City. And a lot of people ask me how I got into this world of fish and wildlife, which is a lot of people get into this world through growing up as um, hunting with their family or going fishing all the time. And actually, I got my interest in conservation biology at the Bronx Zoo in New York City, where I uh, actually worked as a zookeeper right after college in the bird department. So I uh, definitely came in through the back door of conservation, well, that idea of big international conservation. Well, that was my next question. I was going to ask, does it hurt your street cred at AFWA that a Long Island New Yorker from <laughs> Columbia is now working at AFWA? And to give people sort of a sense of what an AFWA meeting is like, especially at the higher levels, just imagine you're visiting the set of Duck Dynasty. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, and lovely. I mean, I know a lot of these folks, great wonderful guys but you know sometimes that's how you feel and so they brought a new yorker on yeah again to mm -hmm. their credit but you know what i did and make i'm young and a girl <laughs> and a, yeah that's true and i think afwa it's weird it's a sort of there's not no we don't need to get into that but it <laughs> i had a little note here says if you're a new yorker not a hunter and they suck you on the climate change thing that sort of makes sense so um <laughs> right i think that's really the the important thing is that it's a a new and different issue that is affecting everything that we do. And I think that's part of my ability to work on this is that I'm, I'm a bit of an outsider. Or I was a bit of an outsider, but it's a bit of an outsider issue um, for people that have, you know, gotten their master's in wildlife management before this was a huge, a huge threat in their minds. But don't you think it means AF was making progress if they hired some good old boy deer management guy as the climate change coordinator from like Alabama or something? <laughs> well, maybe. I think that there's, I mean, we could talk a lot about progress being made on uh, focusing on different species and, you know, initiatives related to monarch butterflies. And a lot of those things are very new for our community and I think moving in a certain direction. You are the climate change coordinator. Now, this is part of a larger conversation I've had on the podcast with previous guests. Why don't you think you were called the resilience coordinator, especially I think some of your funding came from the federal government. And you know what I'm kind of talking about here. Was there ever any talk of you being the resilience coordinator? I think that's a great question. And I'd say no, not that I know of. Uh, I think my funding and my support came before resilience was a true, true buzzword the, the way it is now and before the administration had sort of latched onto it as their word. Um, I went to a great conference in New York this year about climate adaptation in North America, and uh, there was quite a few sessions about resilience and the lack of definition for that word. So I I'm very pleased to be the climate adaptation coordinator rather than resilience. And I do I know you've talked to quite a few of your guests about it, and it's one of your pet peeves. But uh, <laughs> I'm glad that I'm glad that I'm not one of those. <laughs> yes. Well, that's good. I'm happy to. Okay, and so the final thing about your background, and this is actually relatively new information. Uh, Davia just got an award through AFWA. It's the Mark, and I'm going to mispronounce this, Mark Rafe uh, Award, and it's given to profession, wildlife professionals under 35, so basically leaders in the field under 35. Congratulations, Davia. 
Thank you. Thank you, Doug. It was uh, very ex exciting and surprising. And I really appreciate the, the recognition from the organization, but also the recognition that the work I'm doing on climate adaptation is valuable to the state agencies is, is really great. Oh, well, I love it. Just someone, a, a young woman from Long Island, getting there up on stage in front of this gang of uh, Duck Dynasty folks. So I love it. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a funny thing for me because usually at our awards banquet, uh, people know they're getting an award because that's why they're there. But I was there because I worked there. <laughs> so they didn't have to uh, tell me that I was getting it. So I was the only surprise winner that night. And uh, I was thinking that the, one of the reasons they gave me the award is that I like to be prepared and know what I'm going to say. And I had to get up there and give a speech totally off the cuff. So that was a new experience for me. <laughs> awesome. Well, I know how those conferences work. They probably had you off, like, clearing the table duty, which they have all <laughs> staff doing. And they're like, all right, you're getting an award. Now you can go back to that later. So, oh, no. no, again, that is a fantastic. What a great honor. And I'm very happy for you. That's That's fabulous. Me too. <laughs> okay, enough about you. Let's talk about what the states are doing on climate change. You know, I've got a bunch of questions here. I don't think we're going to get them through them all. But when I was thinking about AFWA and I was thinking about what you do with the Climate Change Committee, and then you have states who are dealing with climate change at varying levels. So I, I was, my question is, like, what can individuals or, like, organizations within a particular state do to interface with state agencies on the issue of climate change? And so, I mean, you might have to use a couple examples. Some states are just doing a ton, but mm -hmm. what would be an interface for them to do this? Well, I'd say that the number one uh, interface that I think about and uh, is really important for the state agencies is the state wildlife action plans. So I know that a few of your guests have talked about these plans in the past, but they are comprehensive plans and um, the states produce them in theory, they are for the whole state and not just for the agency. So partners and other conservation organizations or anyone in the state can take a look at that plan to see what are the priority species in that state and what are some conservation actions that the state's identified. Those wildlife action plans are right now supported and implementation of those plans are supported through a federal program that gives, like you were saying, about a million and a half dollars to Florida and some states even less than a million dollars. So they're way more comprehensive than that. So there's huge opportunities for people to tie in and, and work with the state and implementing those plans. But the reason I'm bringing them up on this conversation is that those in many states are the first place where climate change has been explicitly identified as a threat to priority species in the states. And I actually did some work at the beginning of this year to talk to all of the, the folks who wrote those plans. And we found that all 50 state agencies and all six territories have included climate change as a threat in their 2015 revised plans. And that was a, a momentous event for us. Uh, <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> yeah, it's a really big deal. And my, my favorite slide that I've developed on that is a map of the United States. And I just filled it all in because every state said yes climate change is in our plan. And that, um, for some, may sound like not a big deal, but for the state agencies, it's really exciting and a big opportunity. Well, the, oh, I'm sorry, go on. Do you... uh, I was just going to say that, so in some states, that really is the one place where they've started 
climate adaptation planning. So if you were looking to get involved, that's a great place to start. Okay, and so that's great. Great news that states are at least acknowledging in their plan, but you would agree that there is a spectrum of how states are sort of addressing it. And so <laughs> we don't need to name names. That would be a different episode. So, <laughs> But let's say you are from one of those states that really it just is not addressing it in a, a comprehensive way. Are, are there other, let's say your local Audemont group or your local just wildlife group, what are some of the ways that they could maybe engage on climate change? And I know it's not completely your responsibility, but you obviously have an interest in the, all the different states as they manage wildlife. Are there other avenues for them to engage on it? That's a good question. So a lot of the states, uh, in terms of how they go about planning and where you might be able to have some influence, are related to their commissions. And so there's opportunities there. But I think another way, if you and as an individual wanted to get involved, is a lot of states have the opportunity to work as a naturalist or some other sort of volunteer. So you can get involved with restoration projects or education projects. Most state agencies have those opportunities. And uh, if you were to approach that opportunity as a volunteer, you would be able to incorporate some climate adaptation into the way you approach that. Okay, great. Well, I was just trying to give you a leading question there, but... Um, <laughs> Did I miss it? <laughs> it? It rhymes with MCC. Um. Oh, I see. <laughs> I see. So uh, they, uh, Doug is alluding to the landscape conservation cooperatives, I think. Yes. And so the uh, landscape conservation cooperatives are a huge initiative that's come out of the the federal government, the Fish and Wildlife Service, and they've divided the country into 22 segments that they are providing funding and resources through different positions at these LCCs to um, help integrate all of the partners in an area into one planning process that identifies priority conservation targets. So the state agencies are participants and often on the steering committees of these landscape conservation cooperatives. The LCCs also, in some cases, are working almost exclusively on climate change. For example, the Pacific Islands, uh, rather than calling themselves an LCC, they call themselves the Pacific Islands Climate Change Initiative, which is really wonderful and uh, provides an opportunity for the state agencies to engage with a huge suite of partners on those climate adaptation planning projects. Some of the LCCs, based on their steering committee involvement, work a little bit less on climate change and more on other priorities for those regions, but it does offer an opportunity to, to work across regions. That was a great explanation of the LCCs. I don't think any LCC coordinator could have done it better. And it's just, it's, they're not that well funded. And I think out of the 22, some are, I guess, more engaged with partners than others, but they are this initiative. They go kind of cross boundaries. So it is, if you are a state that isn't necessarily working well with your state aid, wildlife agency, you know, it, it's an, it's an opportunity. But no, that was a fantastic explanation. <laughs> Thank you. We definitely work quite closely with LCCs here at AFWA. And they're, they're a huge opportunity. So we want to make sure that they are really providing the, the best service they can to the conservation community. So with all these states doing climate change, I wanted you, and you don't have to go into that much detail, but could you give me one example of a state that really, and you know what I'm talking about, some states have very tiny non-game programs. And what that means is all the things that you can't hunt and fish, and they have a tiny little program, and that's just, it's, it's historical, and I think that's changing. Could you give me an example of a state that really has more of a hook and bullet 
focus that's doing some interesting things on climate change and then maybe an example of a state that you know really has a comprehensive non-game program that's doing really cool things on climate change do you think you can do that do you feel like there's a hook and bullet example um that's a good question i don't know if i can say for sure (laughs) (laughs) if the state i'm thinking of is you know what you would call a, a more classic hook and bullet organization but i think like you're saying the the agencies are transforming very rapidly and um, the one that I first thought of when you said that is actually Minnesota. So um, Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. So they have the mildly unique opportunity that rather than being fish and wildlife, they are natural resources. So they have some purview over more than just fish and wildlife. But they actually um, released last year a climate change and adaptation policy statewide. And I apologize to Minnesota if I don't have the, the name of that right. But it's been a really great opportunity where the Department of Natural Resources has said this is a priority for us and here's how we plan to address it and includes things like uh, requiring state agency staff to have some training in climate change, which is extremely unique uh, among the state agencies and is already having an effect and um, things like that. But they also have started incorporating climate change into some of their programming. Uh, For example, they have a Clean Water Legacy Fund that allows them to use money to set up conservation easements on lakes. And there's many things that they use to prioritize which lakes and which areas they're going to invest in. But they've added another layer to say which of these lakes it has the highest probability of remaining cool if we do set up these conservation easements and protect the forest on those lakes. And so I think they've done a really great job of incorporating climate change into that one particular program. And they're definitely working on many more. And a non-game example, or would you say that's sort of both? I'd say that's that's both. And I think one of the really important things that the state agencies can do is incorporate climate change into everything that they do and not have that distinction between game and non-game. One of the examples that I, I, I think is really impressive is the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. They, for their State Wildlife Action Plan revision, have a list of species of greatest conservation need, and I believe it's nearly 300 species. And that list includes what you would call traditional game species and non-game species. And so they've done a vulnerability assessment for all of those species and prioritized their list of conservation targets based on that vulnerability assessment to say, you know, we had this on the list, but we didn't think it was a huge priority. But looking at the climate projections, we're going to move it up the list. I think that's been an important uh, project for them. A great example. And I just wanted some some context here. Davi has to be very diplomatic. And I don't even need to name states, but historically, some states, they have focused on hook and bullet. And it's not necessarily their it's they're trying not to focus on non-game. It has to do with funding. And so people know when you go out and buy a fishing license or a hunting license, you're going to manage certain species. So it's understandable why these fish and wildlife agencies really emphasize those sort of programs and only recently has non-game. But there really isn't a lot of funding for non-game. So if the people of that state have a sort of, you know, why it's emphasized on hook and bullet species, it's sort of understandable. You know, you, you can't hold it against them. And hopefully we're going to see some changes. But there is a history to that and the swap that you'd mentioned that's some federal money coming out but some states literally have like a one swap coordinator working on non-game issues just because money is tied up through through licenses and such and what did i get that right 
Yeah, you got that right, Doug. And I think um, an important point that I'd, I'd love to tie in here is that the association has really made this a priority, is finding ways to fund that really vital, what we're calling non-game, and hopefully I think we can do away with that distinction over time. But uh, we call it the Wildlife Diversity Program, so looking at the, the full suite of wildlife across the state. And uh, we actually convened a blue ribbon panel uh, on sustaining America's diverse fish and wildlife resources. And that panel has come out with a recommendation that the that Congress should dedicate up to $1.3 billion annually to um, state fish and wildlife agencies from existing revenue on mineral development on federal lands. So uh, AFWA currently has a one full-time staff person who's dedicated towards making that a reality. And uh, we have a, a bill in the House of Representatives. So that's really exciting progress towards finding a way to fund these wildlife diversity programs, like you said, that currently in some states only have one person working on a list of hundreds of species. And um, an important point about that Blue Room panel is they made a second recommendation that gets a little less attention, but that recommendation was that uh, AFWA should help states think about transformation and finding ways to do away with this game, non-game distinction and find ways to focus on wildlife conservation more broadly across the entire state. Well, whenever you went to wildlife meetings, you would see this swap coordinator, and they were always the one drinking the most coffee, and so <laughs> it's understandable. Yes, they get the least sleep, and they have the most species to think about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so another question is you had shared with me at one point, AFWA did a climate change survey, and there's a lot of information there, but I thought, you know, for People out there wanting to understand what states are going through, you know, can you think off the top of your head some of the major barriers that people like the states are dealing with when it comes to climate change? Well, so I'd say um, one of the biggest issues is lack of staff time <laughs> to work on these things. So when you think about what is it that the agencies are doing, they are thinking about um, habitat management, making sure there's enough habitat um, out there. And so most of conservation in the past has been focused on this idea of restoration and protecting land. And so we're adding this threat that covers all of those things. It exacerbates existing threats and also is a new threat on its own. So states are dealing with a lack of uh, staff capacity to deal with that, uh, lack of funding to deal with that, uh, a lack of political will to deal with that. And then one of the, the biggest issues is a dearth of information, but at the same time, too much information. <laughs> so I often hear the phrase, drinking from the fire hose, from people who are um, hoping to start getting engaged and uh, learning about climate change and how they can start thinking about climate adaptation for the first time. And there is so much information out there that it becomes too much to try and read it all. But then at the same time, there's a feeling like, well, there's not enough information out there very specific to my state and my situation. I think those are some of the big barriers. Well, I think this is related to it. Here's a question for you I want you to kind of speculate on. So one of the tools that climate change planners use is a vulnerability assessment, and it just allows you to kind of figure out, you know, if you're looking at species or habitat, what's likely to happen under climate change scenarios to this, and what should we do differently? And so you're doing an assessment of its vulnerability. Now, some states have jumped right into using these vulnerability assessment. In some ways, it's kind of new science. You're doing these future projections. Do you have concerns that at some point, 
where states that are really behind the curve on climate change planning and they're only giving it sort of superficial, you know, acknowledgement, how can you have two states really doing two different types of science? Does that concern you? Uh, I don't think concern would be the right phrase for, <laughs> for how I feel about that. I think one of the incredible things about the state agencies and AFWA itself is that we always have 50 states doing 50 things, and that applies to the more traditional things we think about, like deer management, and it applies to this. So I'm not terribly concerned about that. I think uh, one of the really important things if you're planning on the state level is that uh, you're using the same science on the state level. And one of the examples I'm thinking of is in Nebraska, where uh, the Nebraska legislature said, we need an assessment of cyclical climate change and how that's impacting the state. And the University of Nebraska said, uh, you know what, that's crazy. <laughs> and we are going to do an assessment statewide of climate change, man-made climate change. And so the university forwent the legislature's funding to do that, quote-unquote, cyclical climate change assessment. And so now everyone in Nebraska um, that's working explicitly in their, that area for, you know, the Nebraska Fish and, Fish and Wildlife or Nebraska Audubon or any of their partners has access to that state level Nebraska data. So I think those are really important. So finding a way to have comprehensive information across a state makes it less important to have that comprehensive information from state to state, at least for the work that we do. Well, I guess you're just in phase one. If you can get states to acknowledge climate change and sort of, I guess, address it somewhat. But I, I do think it's going to be a concern for for you maybe five years down the line that, you know, let's say the feds are doing a species vulnerability assessment in a particular state that hasn't really done anything, and they just come to two very different conclusions. It's going to lead to legal headaches, and it's just, mm -hmm. yeah, it could be trouble. Yeah, well, and I think that's the case for all state data. And one of the things that our science advisor here at AFWA thinks about a lot is how do we get um, this sort of legacy data? So state agencies, you know, that have existed for almost 100 years or more in many cases, and they've been collecting information about species in their state, but they do it with different methods across state lines. So we think about finding ways to get state-to-state uh, -state data to talk to each other all the time. And so it's not terribly different on the, the climate issue. Just an example of that, the, the Western states came up with a crucial habitat assessment tool which is a, a tool that found, found a way to uh, use state data that is slightly different in the way it's collected, but to provide a, a region-wide understanding of uh, issues related to species that cross state lines. Okay. Next question for you is the Climate Change Committee. I know AFWA operates with all these different committees. It's like the lead bullet committee. It's the invasive <laughs> species. And so people populate these committees and they get work done. So yeah. you are on the Climate Change Committee. You you provide support to that. And I know there's directors that are a part of that. But what would you say just really quickly that the Climate Change Committee does? So the main role of the Climate Change Committee at this point is to serve as a forum for state-to-state -state learning. For some states, we also provide a little bit of political cover. So if there's a state that doesn't have a lot of support back home, they can say, you know what, AFWA has made this a priority, and I'm a member of this committee, so that gives them a little leeway to uh, work on this issue, even if they wouldn't have had that before. But uh, our main priority is what I mentioned before, where if California is doing something really unique or interesting, gives them an opportunity to share that 
and have the other states learn from it. So climate adaptation is such a new field, and um, Doug, you've been sort of involved with it as it's uh, grown and changed over time. But since it is so new, we sort of serve as that forum for experimenting in some ways to say, hey, we tried this and it didn't really work that well, <laughs> or we're trying this, what do you guys think? And giving that opportunity for um, if there's one person in a state who is the, the climate change point person, uh, this gives them an opportunity to leave their little silo at home and enter a room full of people that are working on the same thing as them. Uh, so in some ways, it's a bit of group therapy also. <laughs> Well, I found the committee was very helpful, even though you might not take like ownership responsibilities of some of these reports, you help recruit state mm -hmm. people to be part of these things. And so there was a guidance document on climate change. Are there any other specific reports you want to highlight that you kind of been part of? Uh, so we work on um, collecting case studies for the National Fish, Wildlife and Plants Climate Adaptation Strategy and examples of how those actions are being implemented. Uh, one of the important things that the committee has just embarked on that I'd love to talk a little bit about is uh, a partnership with our Threatened and Endangered Species Committee. And I know that you spoke to uh, Dennis Fig about the issue of uh, protecting threatened and endangered species in a changing climate. But uh, what we're going to be working on, and hopefully we'll be producing some reports and maybe some guidance on, is this idea of managing rare and declining species in a changing climate. Uh, so in the past, when you had a species that was in decline, you could sort of identify a discrete problem. And the most obvious example is if you talk about eagles and DDT. You know, we remove DDT from the environment and eagles start to recover. So it's, it's pretty discrete. But there are some emerging and coming issues related to climate change that don't have as obvious a response. And so one example uh, that I, I have in mind is related to subspecies of uh, a tiger salamander. So there's one subspecies that's currently listed as threatened, and its range is expanding north, and it's overlapping with another subspecies, and they're starting to hybridize, which uh, sounds like evolution to me. Uh, sounds like how species grow and change over time, but our current system identifies that subspecies is threatened and that we need to protect it, but how do we protect it from hybridization? So uh, the Climate Change Committee is embarking on an initiative to explore some of those issues. First, to just identify what they are. So we have that hybridization issue. Uh, we have issues related to species that are in the southern extent of their range in the United States. And what's going to happen as their range contracts north if they are you know, leaving the state of Georgia and they're going to continue to exist in South Carolina should the state of Georgia make some sort of conservation effort to keep them there. And these are the, uh, what we call, or I've heard them called, the gnarly problems of uh, conservation in a changing climate. So we're working with our, our Threatened and Endangered Species Committee on uh, a small group of people that are going to write down those issues and hopefully start thinking through what are some possible solutions so that when they start to happen, uh, we're not approaching it blind. Well, let's say you're a wildlife planner or just a researcher out in one of these state wildlife agencies, and you know how it is. You at AFWA have limited capacity to help people, but you want to provide all these resources for folks. But if you have a top three or a top five, let's say they're listening to this podcast and they want to get started on climate change, you know how some of these things work. You have a lone individual that just really wants to start thinking about these things. 
Are there steps or resources, things that, I guess steps, what top three steps would you recommend for them to kind of get started on climate change? Oh, that's a, that's a great idea. Uh, great question. Uh, and I think one of the first things that I refer people to, and um, I don't know if I can plug another organization's work, but the National Wildlife Federation, in partnership with many others, came up with the Climate Smart Conservation Guide. And uh, I'm not sure if you talked about that before, but conservation is generally uh, conservation planning thought of as a cycle. Uh, and you go through the steps of the conservation cycle, and that helps you think through what is the problem, what is our goal, how are we going to get to that goal, what actions are we going to take, um, and then some step for, for monitoring that action and revising as you go. And I think the National Wildlife Federation and their partners have done a wonderful job of incorporating climate change into that cycle without too much angst, <laughs> without changing it too much so that it's already, um, people already have the understanding of the cycle and what they're doing there and just adds another layer of how to include climate change in that. So I think that one's really important. The National Fish, Wildlife and Plants Climate Adaptation Strategy sort of provides that baseline. These are some actions that you could fit into that conservation cycle. So I think that's really important. And then there's actually, if you're going a step further back for Climate Change 101, I think that Peter Griffiths from NOAA has an incredible two and a half minute long video that summarizes what is climate change. And I would recommend that. And he, I don't remember what it's called, but he compares coal to a banana. Are you familiar with the video, Doug? No, no. <laughs> so he, uh, he explains the carbon cycle essentially using a comparison between coal and a banana. And uh, we can put it on your, your website with this podcast for people that are interested. But I yes, think it's, yes. it's a beautiful, very quick, this is what climate change is. And I think that is an important first step for some people. Okay. Well, so you, after all that, uh, they would be able to get started. You know, one thing you didn't plug, and it just occurred to me too, is um, Climate Academy. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. there's at National Conservation Training Center, there's a Climate Academy. So it's sort of like Climate Change 101. And it kind of walks you through all those things. So. Right. Well, and I absolutely was thinking about plugging that, but all three of the resources I just mentioned are definitely part of that curriculum. And Doug and I work together to help uh, design that curriculum. And it's an incredible class that I, I do recommend to everyone, but uh, it's it only happens once a year for six months right now, so I, I would not point everyone to it right away if I wanted them to start now. <laughs> but I do recommend that class. It is really engaging and takes you through from what is the carbon cycle all the way to adaptation planning and implementation to the climate communication, which I think is incredible, incredibly valuable. You know, I should know this, but are the webinars that they put on through that available just throughout the year? I don't think that they are. Um, well, we, we might, should do we that. We might have to figure that out. <laughs> we should, we should at the next, we should recommend that. You know, it didn't even occur to me. It's just like, why not just make them, you know, someone who just randomly wants to pick a topic. So I think that'd be great. I think that it would have to fit into their, their business model. At the National Conservation oh, Training yeah, Center. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Put a quarter in here and you can get it. Um, Sounds good to me. Okay, so I got a couple more things I want to get through, but we've covered a lot of ground. And you had mentioned earlier the National Fish and Wildlife Adaptation Strategy. And so I just, if, 
you know how these national strategies are. People in sort of the national climate assessment, they're these great resources that a lot of people spent a lot of time on, and I think the process itself is almost more valuable. But what realistically are some ways that people down into the rank and file of state agencies could kind of plug into this strategy or sort of take advantage of it? And I know you've talked a little bit about that, but are there any other sort of things that they can do? Well, I think the most important thing is to look through the actions that are recommended in the strategy and uh, say, are we doing these actions? Could we be doing these actions? And would it be valuable for us to do them? I think uh, when we first released the strategy and we said, hey, are folks doing this work? Uh, what are some examples? We got a lot of examples of people that are doing work that falls in with those actions, but they aren't necessarily doing it with climate change in mind. So, for example, goal seven of the strategy is related to reducing other stressors. So there are people who have spent their whole career dealing with invasive species, whether it be one particular invasive species or the, the topic in general. But climate change is projected to exacerbate that problem and uh, allow things that are already here to rapidly expand their range and become invasive or things that arrive to spread faster. And so... Uh, not all work to eradicate invasive species is climate adaptation, but a lot of it could be climate adaptive. And so I think that third step I mentioned of would doing these things be climate adaptive is really important. You meet with this group on occasion, and so there are subgroups that I, I don't know how active they are right now, but like there's engagement groups and such. Okay. Are those things available for just random people to join, or is there a more formal process? Um, it is available to anyone who's interested in working through some of these issues, and uh, one of them is related to funding. How do we how do we fund these climate adaptation act actions that we've recommended? One of them is related to actually implementing this strategy, and that some of the things we recommend uh, must happen at sort of a, a system wide level rather than what one individual manager can achieve. So we're exploring ways to push through implementation of some of those. And right now we're very focused on the idea of landscape level planning, which really ties into what we said before about the LCCs, but really the importance of thinking beyond state lines and at ecosystem level. Well, I forgot the question, Doug. Well, it was just ways of <laughs> What people, are we talking about? <laughs> well, just people can plug in to the, the national adaptation right, right, and so these right. the subgroups and I you know, I could include that on my show notes. It's like part of this is just getting a hold of you and maybe having that conversation that you have someone from Wyoming that's interested in getting more involved that you could kind of walk them through. It's like, well, here's some opportunities. I mean, is that an accurate right, way? Yeah. Well, so I think what I was saying here and uh, I was saying that we have the, the subgroup on funding, the subgroup on implementing the strategy, and then I wanted to say that you know every everything about what we're working on through the strategy is available on our website at wildlifeadaptationstrategy.gov. And so there's multiple initiatives ongoing and multiple subgroups that are working together, and they're mostly staffed by state and federal agencies and some tribal agencies, but we are absolutely looking for and actively pursuing participation from outside of, of governmental organizations on those subgroups. So more info at wildlifeadaptationstrategy.gov. And to its credit, even though it was counting on that cap-and-trade money coming through, I think it was the first of its kind national adaptation strategy. Is that sort of how it's pitched? Yeah, definitely. It was the first sector-wide adaptation strategy. So uh, since our strategy has come out, I know that the, the water sector 
has one now, and I think there's one for um, maybe coastal infrastructure in coastal states, but this was the first comprehensive sector-wide SAD strategy. Okay, so you guys have just recently started hosting the Adaptation Awards, and I know you do this in collaboration with the Council of Environmental Quality, which is just the federal arm, environmental policymaking arm. Is You had your first batch of awards, just some amazing people doing some amazing things, and so get, what's the, the calendar on that? When's that happening again? Sure. So that was really exciting, and I was so happy to be a part of this Climate Adaptation Leadership Award for Natural Resources. And there's more information about that on wildlifeadaptationstrategy.gov as well. But uh, we announced those award winners uh, this year, a few months ago, and we will start recruiting for the 2007 winners starting at the end of this month. Keep your eye out for that. And we're, we appreciate nominations from all over. We had um, nominees from across multiple sectors for their work related to natural resources and some really incredible nominees like um, Bob Glazer, who we had on the show a few weeks ago Yay. Um, from Florida. But uh, we're hoping to uh, really recognize a, a new batch of, of great leaders in May of next year at the National Adaptation Forum, which will be in St. Paul, Minnesota. So we're really looking forward to recognizing those folks in, in front of their peers. Well, I, and I would encourage listeners, all those adaptation professionals out there that shows that we're, we're an emerging field, that we've come up with an awards program. <laughs> and it's, yeah, there's enough people working on it that we can recognize leadership there. And, you know, I think part of it is like you, you can nominate yourself, right? You can nominate yourself. You know, and sometimes people feel that's a little unseemly, but some of you are doing amazing work out there. So take a look at the sort of criteria need to get those stories out and the fact that they're getting acknowledged. That's a good thing. So it's worth your time. We need more adaptation award winners. Davi, I want to wrap this up. We've been going on a while. It's not a bad thing. This has been fantastic, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on sort of like what's next for you. You sort of alluded to some of these other programs that the committee is going to work on, but just you know, over the next year, what, what's on your plate? Um, so, yeah, like I mentioned, the, the threatened and endangered species work, that is, I think, one of my, well, maybe I'll call it a passion project, where I think that's really one of the important things that we need to be able to to figure out and be prepared for because it's uh, it's new and gnarly, as I said before, and I really enjoy saying that word. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's that. We're working on the award, and uh, we've been working with the CEQ as well on the Resilient Lands and Waters Initiative, which uh, came out of the, the administration and has the word resilient in there. But uh, one of the yes. important things about the word resilient is that when you think about climate adaptation, you can think of it as resilience, resistance, resilience, and transition. Right. Uh, and so we're looking here at this idea of resilience within existing landscapes and areas that will be uh, resilient, which means that they will um, be able to return to their previous state quickly. Um, I think that we do need to start thinking about transition, and that's what the Threatened and Endangered Species Subcommittee uh, at AFWA is going to be thinking about this, uh, rather than restoring to a previous state or the ability to respond and come back to a previous state, we need to start thinking about transition and transformation. And uh, if we want to keep species on the landscape, it might not be in the same place that they were before, which is a, a very hard topic for people to, to be comfortable with. That sounds like a fantastic agenda. So my last two questions for you are, the first one is, what is your favorite wildlife species? Oh, 
I hate that question, Doug. That one, I change my mind every day. And what is it today? <laughs> what is it today? I am a huge fan of roseate spoonbills, which are a bird species that is hot pink <laughs> with an incredible bill that they use for foraging underwater. It's shaped like a spoon. It's very flat and uh, pretty amusing. <laughs> are, are they found in New York? They are not uh, found in New York. They're typically found um, in Florida, actually. Ooh, checkmate. So this <laughs> and, uh, oh, can I say another one, Doug? <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. All right. Huge, I'm a huge fan of hellbenders. Uh, oh yes. A giant uh, amphibian, a giant salamander of North America. They can be, gosh, nearly two feet long and maybe five to six inches wide. Uh, and uh, quite a few states are working on comprehensive breeding programs to reintroduce hellbenders to the wild. Um, with a name like that, you'll understand that people used to actively kill them because they were afraid of them, but they really are just wonderful freshwater creatures. Oh, it's my favorite name for a species. It's not my favorite <laughs> species, but the hellbender. Have you ever seen the photos of the giant Japanese salamander? I have. Oh, I mean, the thing is size of a big dog. I mean, it, you just didn't think a salamander would get that big, but I maybe I'll include that in the show notes. There's, there's a picture of this guy holding one, and he's like he's holding a big dog, so it's huge. Yeah. And so the second question related to, let's go with the spoonbill, do you know, what are the chances under climate change? Um, I think they're likely quite good. Um, I think I don't have any evidence to support this, <laughs> but uh, they are um, semi-tropical, and um, I think that their range is likely to expand in the United States, and we'll get them further and further north in freshwater areas. Well, maybe you'll get them in New York. <laughs> I, I, I think. <laughs> we might get some hellbenders too in New York from the from the Appalachians and the pythons and all sorts of goodies. Yeah, looking forward to it. Well, we already have some of those in New York City from people's pets that they right. <laughs> no longer want anymore. <laughs> well, Davia, that was great. That's how I want to end this. But I will, I like to give my guests sort of like a, a last chance. Any sort of final thoughts that you wanted to share before we close this out? Um, I just say that uh, we've talked a lot about how there's a a huge diversity of state agency engagement on this issue, but I am I'm so proud to get to work with and for the state agencies, and um, even those that you might want to belittle or say you know they're not doing enough, um, there are people there who are doing the best that they can with the resources they have. So I feel really lucky to have the opportunity to to help them move along, even if it's in the most tiny incremental way. Spoken like a true AFWA person. <laughs> and it, it, it makes me happy to know that someone like you with your background and your passion for it is working at AFWA doing these things. So thanks for all that you are doing. Oh, thanks, Doug. And, yeah, thank you for this opportunity to, to talk to a, an audience that's interested in this. And, you know, the state agencies are the, the place for wildlife conservation. So if you're interested, check out their website. I think most people usually think federally or they think the Nature Conservancy or World Wildlife Fund. So check out your state agency, what they have going on. might be really interesting to you. All right. Well, thank you, Davia, and thanks to all the listeners out there. This has been America Daps, the climate change podcast. Hi, everyone. We're back. This is Doug Parsons with America Daps, the climate change podcast. It is your favorite time of the week. It's the Adaptation and Wine Power Hour with Tim Watkins. Tim, are you out there? Hey, Doug. How are you? Are. Okay. All right. People want to know. It's my favorite time of the week, too, by yes, the way. Yes, it's wrap things up. So what's your poison this week? 
What's my poison? Uh, I'm drinking a Pinot Noir. I don't have the bottle in front of me in the label, but I believe it's a 2014 uh, Pinot Noir, and it's it's pretty nice. It's um, robust and a uh, little bit uh, sweet, some berry notes, uh, and it's just fine for what is turning out to be this kind of the start of our first fall weather. Sounds lovely. I'm drinking a Pinot Grigio. It too is a 2014, and it's it's a Gabbiano Fabriasso or something. I'm brutalizing the name, but yeah, it is pleasant too, a bit fruity, but nice for the time of day. So there we go. We have our wine. Let's talk climate change. So I had asked Tim to read an article that I wanted to discuss because it's been in the news quite a bit the last week. And so for those of you who know a lot about climate change, the the idea of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, parts per million, and there's groups called 350. And so in this past week, carbon in the atmosphere has, they think, permanently passed 400 parts per million. And in this article talked about, and it wasn't just this article, actually showed up in multiple places that they really don't think, the climatologists don't think it's ever going to go below 400 again. And that is unless, you know, society profoundly changes what we're doing with energy and then it would still take decades and so i wanted to talk to tim about you know here we have these numbers are they useful to think about climate change like this and what does it mean for adaptation so tim your thoughts on the article yeah uh, uh they're definitely useful for thinking about climate change i think um it that's a real number uh and I, it's a good benchmark and it's important to track these things. And obviously, scientists have been measuring carbon dioxide at several stations around the planet for many, 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 many years. Your listeners probably know something about the Keeling curve, which is the the hockey stick graph of uh, carbon dioxide. And that measurement, the Keeling curve, has been made on Mauna Loa in Hawaii at the top of the mountain. So in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, far away from all industrial sources of CO2, you can measure CO2 in the atmosphere, and it's been going up and up and up and up and up. And that is the latest report, right? It's the minimum in the end of the northern hemisphere summer when uh, CO2 naturally starts to go up anyway because of the change in seasons. And that minimum has now gone above 400. Uh, it is an arbitrary number in a sense, although you'd have to talk to climate scientists about whether there's a relationship between 400 and certain degrees of warming that they're predicting and wanting to stay away from. But I think it is in, ter- in terms of communicating the ongoing uh, nature of climate change and the problem with CO2 production, it is useful to have a number and to track when we go above that number. It's a pretty negative thing, though, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. It's like, oh, God, we're about to cross it. and Oh, no, we've crossed it. And in a few years, maybe people will start saying, well, gee, you know, we've never gone over 405. And what happens? We don't want to go over 405. And then sure enough, you go over 405. And you it's, it's again, just sort of this negative thing. It's like, wow, are we ever going to slow this down or stop it? That can be a motivating force, I think, as you sit there and sort of tick away uh, every accomplishment, as it were, or every uh, every threshold that you cross. In terms of adaptation, where I think it's important to get messages out about creativity and possibilities and good uh, good approaches to solving problems, there, to my knowledge, really is no sort of metric out there that gets reported on. 
And I don't know, Doug, what you think. Um, maybe it would be useful to keep track of sea level rise at various locations because that, of course, has very real clear connotations for adaptation. Um, but again, it's kind of a negative thing, right? It's like, oh, the ocean is rising further and further and further, and we're almost, you know, X many feet above normal. Yeah, I'm having uh, trouble getting my head around coming up with, like, a positive number. That Okay, going back to the whole carbon side of things, you know, there is the group called 350, and the whole point behind that is, like, to stabilize carbon parts per million at 350, and then we might be able to keep a handle on temperature rise. And, of course, we've already – we're now at 400. We've blown through that. Um, that makes their raising money a, a bit challenging. And I'm on the fence on the value. I love numbers. I love tracking these things, but I'm – you know, I, I follow these things. But when it comes to a way to communicate to the public, I still don't sense the vast majority of the public has any clue really what the concept of carbon in the atmosphere really means you know and it's easily dismissed and so not that you shouldn't use 400 but it's just i'm still on the fence on how valuable that is and it, it truly is arbitrary and if it's just a reminder that's good in regards to adaptation i was thinking the same thing sea level rise and again that's negative and i you know when we go to workshops and we talk about adaptation planning you have to come up with different scenarios and models and like three feet of sea level rise has been like a favorite number that a lot of people go to because I think it allows you to visualize, right? You're thinking at the beach. Now, what if it was three feet higher? That's useful. But I don't know, and this is my lack of imagination right now, what would be sort of more of a, a positive way to approach numbers and metrics when it comes to adaptation? So I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure either. It, it is a hard thing to do. Uh, maybe it's we we talked a couple weeks ago, I think, about um, the ski area industry and their need to maybe try on different uh, approaches to providing snow or providing just other ways for people to ski. Remember, I mentioned some ski areas are putting down these sort of plastic yeah. tiles so that people can ski even if there's no snow around it. So <laughs> maybe you need the plastic tile index or something. Um, or back to our wine, uh, maybe it's about numbers of uh, vineyards that are now growing outside their traditional range or have adapted to using different kinds of fruits uh, or avocados as the main But you know that kind, of, that kind of smacks produce, of like Baghdad Bob, if you remember that guy from the Iraq War. He was just like, everything's just lovely, and U.S. tanks were coming in the street. And we're going, well, you know, <laughs> yeah. the production of wine has gone through the roof. Um, I don't know. <laughs> that might be, yeah, that right. might be a Baghdad Bob kind of right. moment. Right, right. Yeah, I don't, it's a really hard thing to do to kind of get that across. Uh, but I, like we said on the very first episode of this, I do think adaptation really is about creativity and uh, putting our um, our minds and our ability to be innovative and entrepreneurial to the task of responding to the problems that we face. And and humans have been adapting to climate for millennia, right, um, 10,000 years or more in the case of societies, and you could even argue over the entire course of human evolution for, let's say, the last 3 million years or perhaps longer. So there's really nothing new, I think, about the idea that we can adapt. The question is how do you talk about that and how do you get people to understand uh, 
that we need to do things, that we are doing things, that we can do more things, and uh, that we can be creative about it. It's it's a hard thing. So I maybe we can set this out as like a like challenge it. to the listeners to suggest if there were a number or if there were some metric or if there were some way of measuring and talking about climate change adaptation in ways that get people really interested and committed and kind of tracking climate change adaptation what would that be? What do you propose? I love it. That's a challenge out there to listeners. You know, you can email me and give your ideas. We will come and talk about it on the podcast. I like that. Um, well, okay. So I didn't expect us to solve that problem. I think it was more of an interesting thing about using metrics and numbers and all these sort of things. I think with adaptation, we have – we tend to – I think rely on like charismatic megafauna and like the impacts on species as a way of saying, okay, how are we going to adapt? Why it's worth adapting? But when it, we I don't we don't have the equivalent of 400 parts per million that I'm aware of. So, right. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks, Tim. You, any final thoughts on the topic or anything else before we sign off here? Uh, I don't. Not on metrics. I you know I do think that there's some nice, really positive metrics that perhaps people think of as having more to do with mitigation, and that is the total number of solar panels that have been installed or the market value of solar uh, panel installments and that sort of thing. And um, those are those are hopeful, right? You talk about growth in the alternative renewable energy industry, and I I think that that's hopeful. It's also economically um, accurate. But how to how to do that for adaptation is pretty tricky. Yeah, yeah, I guess you get into the policies of it. Like, you know, 48 out of 50 states now have statewide adaptation plans so that I can start to dig into those numbers mm -hmm. or something. Yeah, I might start falling asleep if we start talking about <laughs> this term. No, I get your point. No, we're, we're going to hear some great things from the listeners, so I anxiously await those comments. So, Yeah, I look forward to it. So, folks, send in your ideas. All right. Drink up, Tim, and thanks again, and I will see you next week. All right. This Cheers, is Doug. America Daps, the Climate Change Podcast. Everyone, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again for joining in. Thanks to Davia Palmieri and thanks to Tim Watkins for being the guest on today's episode. Don't forget to visit the website at americadaps.org and please consider subscribing on Stitcher, on iTunes. All you have to do is look for America Daps on those places. Also, consider just sending me comments or if you have an idea for a guest, I can be reached at americadaps at gmail.com. And for those of you, there should be some of you out there that are coming across the podcast on YouTube and are listening there. It's easier if you just subscribe to it on iTunes or just get it through your smartphone. So please look at getting it that way. But thanks for however you're listening to the podcast. And until next week, where I have James Stilwell from the University of, American, University of Maryland, I appreciate, appreciate every single one of you who listens in to America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Thanks.